House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren. Mr. Dave Martino is back. Yes, I'm back. <laughs> See, no, it's <laughs> your, like I never left. Yeah, and it's your Friday, and finally you, you're actually back to normal after the big birthday weekend. Yeah, and, yeah. And it's over. I, I'm never normal. <laughs> normal. 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 Oh, sound Boston-ish again. Yes. Got to get rid Uh-oh. of that. Yeah, it's a I'm bad, trying to hide it. Yeah. Keep it undercover. Yeah. <laughs> Well, now let's see. Today we are doing uh, another author, and we're talking about um, a new book called When the House Burns. And with us is the author of that book, Priscilla Patton. Thank you for being on the show. Well, I'm honored to be here and very happy that you asked me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure, pleasure. So now this this book, um, let's talk about the basics of the book. Now, it's, I guess it's a kind of a traditional detective mystery sort of thing. So um, let's talk about the um, main characteristics of the, of the book. Well, I have two detectives based in the Twin Cities area of Minneapolis and St. Paul. They do work for a public agency that I invented because I did not want to be sued by a real police department. But their names are Detective Eric Jansen and Detective Deb Metzger. They're both tall, they're both athletic, they're both in their 30s, and they're both attracted to women. And let's just say they chafe on each other a little bit. Um, They can make an excellent team because they have different strengths, but they do kind of come from different planets. And what I've heard from readers is they most like the repartee between them, the exchanges between them. For other characters in this book, When the House Burns, which, yes, does concern houses, Uh, I could say it's about sex, death, and real estate. The other characters are Karma, a young widow who's a real estate agent, a young man named Rafe who works for a housing development company, and Rafe is a bit of a scene stealer. He could turn out to be the villain or not, or he could still be the villain. I'll let you decide that, but he's somebody who wants to ruthlessly reach the top. At least he thinks at first he wants to ruthlessly reach the top. But this book opens with the body of another realtor, a friend of Karma's, found shot. She's shot in the lot of a house for sale. So did a prospective client shooter? Nobody knows. But it turns out this realtor was adulterous. So now the detectives begin looking at the husband and begin to look at all the developers and clients she worked with. And into the mix, because the mix has to be a little complicated and a little juicy, into the mix are ex-lovers and a homeless man who may be stalking both Karma and the woman who has since been killed. And that homeless man may have been involved in an arson a few months previously where yet another man died. So I've probably confused you totally at this point. But anyway, there's the two detectives, Karma the Widow, and the young man who wants to outsmart everybody, including the developer, and maybe doesn't realize how much trouble he's making for himself. Now, this is part of a series, so you're writing the Twin Cities Mysteries, right? Yeah. So when you write a, a series like this, 
Um, now, these are standalone, or do you need to read them all in order? You can read them as standalones, and I work, I work to make it that way. So you don't have to be introduced to the characters by going back to the previous book. Of course, it's much, much richer if <laughs> you read all the books. I have to say that as an author because I'm sure somewhere you can get a deal on all three of them. But um, I do write them as standalones. And often when, I'm start, when I started the second and third books, it was different from the first. With the first, the detectives came for me first. But because I was going to use Eric and Deb again, I could set them aside and usually it was the newer characters and their issues and their problems. Um, in this case, Karma being terrified that a realtor she was so close to was shot and people she knows may have been the killer. Um, so I usually start with the newer characters, and that gets me into the new plot angles. And uh, I do have to work, too, at keeping the recurring characters because there is sort of a workplace group, as there is when you watch so many TV shows or read more mysteries. You know, Longmire has a crew that's always there. You know, NCIS has a crew that's always there. So I have to work hard to make them the same but different. Well, how do you keep track of everything, all of your characters and, and all the happenings and the continuity through the series? Do you, do you have tools? Do you have a process? How do you do that? Well, it's a headache. I tend to like a lot of characters, and to tell the truth, usually there are some characters that may, never make it to the final version. I have to kill a lot of darlings. Um, so I do keep a running outline of what I think is happening in the plot with characters' names highlighted. And at some point, usually when I have a very rough first draft done, and getting that first draft done is the misery phase, I get a big calendar whiteboard and I put the characters on it with different colored pens. It's very much like a you know grade school project. So Eric might be red and Deb might be blue. So I can kind of see which scenes the different characters are in and when and in which scenes they connect. So I do have a process which makes it sound like I'm really on top of it, but you're always thinking organically too, what does this character want from the other. In other words, one thing I learned, I think, from the writer David Putnam is books are very much driven by characters. I would say my characters are sometimes bad drivers who crash, but you have to think about what do they want from each other, uh, and not just in terms of, well, give me the answer to the mystery, but do they want a sexual relationship? Do they want that person to disappear forever? Do they want to take advantage of somebody? Do they want help from somebody? So as I'm developing the characters, I have to think of sort of what they wanted before the story began, but once what they want once the story is rolling, what's, once it's put into motion. Because part of the intrigue of the book is how a character's motivations might be revealed or might actually shift as that character encounters different conflicts or is threatened or has some other drastic change in their life. So where do you come up with your characters, and, and how much of you is in, in each character, and do you have one that you're sort of particularly uh, a favorite of or one that you relate to the most? Well, I could start with the blanket statement that the characters – are the alter egos of my alter egos. I do try to have some distance, but, you know, there probably is a little 
bit of me in all the characters. And I came up with Eric Jansen first. And in some ways, I was inspired by him, by both my husband's family, who were, I'm here in Minnesota. Uh, my husband grew up in this area in, in Wisconsin. And his family can, you know, on Ancestry.com, they're 99% Norwegian. The other 1% is Swedish. Now, I grew up in rural Maine, a genetic mutt. But I knew Stoic men, much like the Stoic men that are here in northern Minnesota. So my father is a little bit of an influence on Eric, but more a model of Eric's father, someone who has a very dry wit and um, is very reserved. And I give Eric some of that reserved. Like Eric, I can be very reserved myself. I have to um, work myself up sometimes to get out to social events. I sometimes forget that other people can't read my mind. And they can't read my mind when I'm writing either. I found I had to be much more explicit about my ideas in writing. So I may be a little closer to Eric, but I'm not as devious as he is. You know, you always try to make your characters better than you in some traits. So he's far more devious, far more clever, and far faster than I am. So, yes, that's wish fulfillment. Deb was actually modeled on a doctor I met years ago in rural Maine, a woman doctor in a profession where, at that time, women still weren't terribly welcome. She was well over six feet tall. I have no idea of her sexual orientation, but she had a big, booming voice, and she was a very strong advocate for indigent patients, for patients who were underserved, for patients who were on Medicaid. And I sort of heard her at work, and she impressed me, and she would be a hard person to stand up to. So she's a bit of the background for Deb. I also may give Deb some of the ideas that I can't say because I'm a filtered person, more or less. But Deb's unfiltered, so she gets to say those, all those things for me. And with the, other with the other characters, it's, you know, sometimes it comes with a name. I had started the book with a character named Edward, and I couldn't do anything with Edward. When I changed his name to Rafe and made him a little suspicious, he's part British, part, you know, Indian from New Delhi, part Minnesotan. Once I changed his name to Rafe, suddenly a world of possibilities opened up. Well, I was, I was curious, um, how, how was it transitioning um, from New England uh, to the Midwest? I know I'm, I'm from the Boston area, and uh, we, we kind of have in this area a very um, like strong connection, I guess, to, to uh, the New England area. So I was just wondering how, how it was to uh, transition to, uh, to, to the Midwest. Well, I liked your use of R where there wasn't any right then. That, that said to me, um, Yeah, exactly right. Well, yes, there are differences, though both are states, um, not the Twin Cities area so much. The Twin Cities are almost like the equivalent of Boston in the state of Minnesota, and Duluth is like Portland, Maine. You know, but there, there is a state of North Woods and hardy activity. And um, in my family, uh, there are people who hunt and fish, and I give some of those traits to Eric. Uh, there still are differences, though. I find Midwesterners actually a little more, they might not think it. They're big on t into the whole passive-aggressive thing, but I think they admit to more than many New Englanders. I think New Englanders still are very reserved, though some of them are great storytellers. I met my husband, by the way, who was born in St. Paul, Minnesota, 
at Boston College, a graduate school. So there's a very important Boston connection, you see. So my development or my character is in the Scandinavian Midwest setting. I think I do that as both an insider because I've been married for over 40 years to this Scandinavian-American, and I've lived in Minnesota for nearly 20 years now. So in that sense, I'm an insider. But I grew up in New England. I grew up in the land of Robert Frost, where people were even maybe a little drier and more sarcastic and, uh, you know, didn't reveal their feelings much at all. So I think I can play both sides there a little bit. When when you're putting together the story, do you – you sit down and outline, especially when you're doing a series like this, of, of where the beginning, middle, and ending is going to be, and then fill it in, or are you just writing as it goes? I usually have to do some pre-writing. And once I get a premise, and if I can get my ending, I then can jot out some ideas. But I sort of have to write about 70 pages first before I can even begin to outline I have to, I usually have to start with characters, and I'm trying to write the next novel right now. And I found I was getting too much into characters' backstories, the new characters and the detectives. And I thought, well, this is just me preparing for the novel, not actually writing the novel. And I have to remind myself of that, some of that sometimes. And I need to start coming up with a plot soon. So, as you probably know, they talk in mystery world about pantsers and plotters. I lean toward the pantser side and envy the plotters, and I like to call myself a builder because I'll create a scaffold, like character development. Then I'll start to fix the plot around that and then do another phase, have a scaffold, and then sort of build the plot again, rethink the plot again. But um, I try to be very structured about it, but there's actually a lot of anxiety and a lot of, can I really do this? And I think in a first draft, you just really have to have faith that you don't like it now, it isn't working now, but it will work once you get something to pull apart and restructure. Now, when you were starting this series, when you were writing the very first book, did you have it in mind that it was going to be a series, or did that just happen? I liked the idea of the series, and I liked series that had detectives in them. Um, this this. My reading goes back long before my writing, but like Petey James, the British writer who had Adam Dalgleish, Elizabeth George, who's American but writes in the British vein with her Inspector Lindley series. So I liked a lot of those series, and my husband actually helped, was the assistant to someone writing a biography of Rex Stout of the Nero Wolf and Archie Goodwin series, that sort of wisecracking, you know, American series. So I had those in mind, but I'd never written a novel, and I'm doing this as a second career. I'd never written a novel, and I consider myself lucky if I got even one novel out. Though when I got the phone call from the acquisition letter editor, excuse me, at the press, asking, is this a series? I said, of course, being absolutely panicked about that answer. Yeah, well, I was going to say, you know, do you, do you just sit down and write? Can you just do that without... Being in a mood, does it come to you naturally, or do you have to work yourself into a place where you feel like writing? Well, I may have started with mysteries because I was in a mood, a certain kind of mood, and I'll explain that in a second. I had a life as an academic, and sometimes when you say that, people say, well, you must write really boring stuff. Well, I'll put that aside for a minute. But I had a life as an academic, did a lot of 
other kind of writing, academic, scholarly, um, some private pieces for my family. I also wrote a children's book, which was published with Houghton Mifflin. But I had done a kind of writing, and I was easing out of teaching. And at that time, the Scandinavian mysteries were making a big arrival in the U.S., you know, the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo series. Meanwhile, my husband's work and some of my own were in administrative areas. Let's just say I had to go to a lot of receptions and smile. I had to hear the same speeches, not once, not twice, but maybe 35 times. Somebody had to die, and I decided to be safer if that person died in fiction than in real life. (laughs) So that was the mood I was in. Somebody had to die. And the Scandinavian mysteries were so popular, and I started reading them. My husband's a really a huge reader of all kinds of mysteries. And I began making fun of them. Oh, let me guess, the detective's damage. Somebody shot his mother, lover, cat. You know, uh, it goes on like that. He drinks too much. <laughs> the coffee is horrible. Why can't they make good coffee? So anyway, and somebody said, well, why didn't you try one? And I really wanted to try a different kind of writing. So I said, oh, sure. So... Uh, again, a good response, but it was uh, it, it was difficult to start. And I have to thank the Loft Literary Center in Minneapolis, and particularly mystery writer David Housewright, because know what you don't know. I'd done all kinds of writing. I knew I didn't know how to write a mystery, so I took uh, night classes at the Loft with David Housewright, and that made such a huge difference. And I didn't really even start writing, though I had some ideas until I got a better sense of how I could do it without being totally lost. Well, what, what made you do that change? What made you go into a, a totally different career where you're writing mystery? Uh, you know, like, what, what was it that, that led you that way? Um, growing more mature or older in the sense that I found I needed something more that was more of a page turner to keep me awake when I read at night. I would doze off over my serious book. So I I did want writing that was more entertaining, and I no longer had to teach for the income or anything like that. So I thought, well, I can have some fun. And I've always liked witty books. Um, I've always liked books books that have had a bit of a puzzle to them. And even a lot of literary writers have a crime element or a puzzle element in their books, like Louise Erdrich or Richard Rousseau or James McBride, these are all like Pulitzer Prize winners. So I think I think I wanted to have some mischief, and my detectives gave me a way to have some mischief. That said, I think people starting some of my books might say, oh, this part's funny, but boy, you get kind of serious too. And I think that's true of so many murder mysteries because uh, I've been involved in nonprofits dealing with victims of domestic abuse, dealing with homeless people, and crime often attaches itself to the desperate, uh, either as victims or as perpetrators. Though, yes, crime happens at all levels. So I think I had a couple of veins in my life going on. I wanted distraction. I wanted mischief. I wanted some, I, I did want a high level of craft to practice. Um, I had been an amateur musician once, and I liked the trying to do something to the best you can. But I also was exposed to all these other issues, and particularly with this book, When the House Burns, that's a product of the pandemic. You know, I had started, 
I'd actually started a whole different book when a couple of things happened. Housing wasn't even in that other book. There's a whole different topic. When the pandemic came, we had the stay-at-home order, and turned out the house we were living in, plumbing corroded out from underneath it, so it had a toxic basement that was condemned, and we had to move right away. And about the time we had to move, it was the absolutely tragic murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, and that was just so devastating. So to tell the truth, I really couldn't write much fiction for a while. Um, I mean, I was kind of busy about to promote my second book that was coming out, Should Grace Fail. And when I did write, I thought, well, I have to confront these issues in some way, and I'll try to do it through my detective's thoughts. And though I don't bring in some of the worst of the times into the book, there are references to the pandemic. There are references to police departments being in huge trouble and the killing of people of color. And my detectives have to sort of struggle with that and move their way ahead. So in a way, writing for me is agonizing as it can sometimes be could be a fun place, but it could also be a safe place where it could vent some of those things that were troubling me so much. Well, I'd also think it was, you know, maybe a difficult uh, to, to cross over to academic writing, uh, from academic uh, academia to uh, popular fiction, because I know it's not always looked at the same uh, doing, doing popular fiction. I did have a lot of anxieties with my first novel that my friends were academics, because academics make friends with other academics, surprising that is. But anyway, I was, I was sort of afraid to say, oh, this is stupid. This is silly. And I just sort of had to get beyond that. And actually, there's some of my first readers and readers who really like it. A lot of them read entertaining material, too. But yes, I, I had to throw away a lot of that first novel. I had, a, I had many false starts. You know, and this is true for a lot of writers when they first begin fiction or something totally different. It took me five years to do this first book, 18 months to do the second, and closer to two years because of COVID with this one that's coming out now when the house burns. But I have to admit, I did have anxieties about it. But I thought, well, if P.D. James could do it, and you, you, your audience may not know P.D. James, but she's absolutely brilliant. So I was, this was sort of a joke on me. I said, well, if P.D. James can be that brilliant, I can too which didn't quite happen, but I had that as an aspiration. But it is hard, and I, it got easier. That one part did get easier. I learned to not have to explain things so much, to let my characters say what they want without necessarily having deep meanings. In fact, even to make fun of deep meanings. Some of what I do in these books, I think, is I'm not making fun of the academic world because I believed in it, and I still believe in it, but like any world, it has its issues. It has its inner conflicts. It has its pettiness. And one thing that happens in When the House Burns is Deb Metzger is put on a committee. It's called, like, the Committee to Fix Everything, you know, on how to deal with sexism, racism. You know, and it actually drives her up a wall. And, yes, we've all been places, we've all had jobs where we know that something has to happen and somebody has to do it. But we sometimes our murderous instincts come out during those committee meetings. Let's say, at, at the end of the day, someone picks up your book, what is it you hope they take away from it? Well, I hope they have a great time. I hope they have a great time, and I hope they like the characters. I don't want to say I write totally likable characters. They all have flaws, but I hope they really feel, maybe like isn't the right word, engaged by the characters, and not just the detectives, but the other characters as well. 
But I also hope they find some heart in it. I mean, I thought hard and had my characters think hard about what home means to them. So I want them to have fun. But they also want them to feel sort of a more emotional satisfaction, too. Maybe, again, I'm struggling to think of it myself, but when I was thinking about this book just this morning, and authors sometimes see things in their books after they had a distance on them, I think, well, in some ways, my assumption behind the book is that we all need a home, whether we deserve one or not. I borrowed that idea from poet Robert Frost. We all need a home, but it doesn't really feel like a home until it has a heart in it. And for different people, what makes the home, what gives the home that heart is going to vary. And you could say in this book, some of the people have homes that don't have enough heart in them, and that's the problem. Or in the case of my detectives, Deb is literally homeless because she was kicked out of a subway, and Eric is divorced. And though he has a very nice place to live, it still doesn't feel like home. Having fun, not taking things too seriously, there's some satire in there, but also feeling that there's a heart at the center. How do you get into the heads of, of writing characters that you are not... Uh, you know, you're not anything like yourself or any, you haven't had the life quite like them. It's a back and forth between sort of um, free writing, which I learned to do much more through those NaNoWriMo programs, the National Write a Novel in a Month program, where you you count how many words you write every day, or rather your computer counts. So I kind of just let free writing go. But then I do have to go back and revision and say, how would this character think? And I get ideas from reading other books. I can't remember. It may have actually been a classical book by somebody like Charles Dickens or uh, the British novelist George Eliot. And I was just reading a passage from it, not a mystery novel at all. And I thought, young men, even very nice young men, are often callow and don't understand other people's feelings. You may have witnessed that in real life, particularly if you have sons. Anyway, um, and that helped me actually develop the character of Rafe, somebody who doesn't necessarily see his impact on others. So I, I do read lots of books and watch a lot. Of, there are a lot of excellent um, series on, that stream now. So I do sort of try to absorb all those characters out there. And then when I'm particularly in revising, try to sharpen what that character wants. Some of them come easily to me. Some of them, their names just fall out of the air. Like that was true was true for Karma, true for Eric Jansen. Um, not true for Ray, because I said he started off as a whole different person, and I had to come up with a different name to give him a new direction. So it, it does take effort, and it does take research, too. I do some boring research where I'll read articles about or by lawyers or about or by housing developers. Um, so I get their professional chart, and I try not to burden the book with it, but um, I did that to help me write the dialogue for several scenes in this book between um, a property developer and the detectives and some of the other characters. Uh, the way a property developer thinks is not necessarily the way a detective would think. Well, speaking of dialogue, are, are you the type of writer that can hear the characters in your head? Do you have an inner monologue? Is that how you create dialogue as well? I, I probably do have an inner monologue. I've probably had it since being a child in rural Maine 
too far from town to play baseball to get that reference. But anyway, I've probably always been one of those people who's too much inside my own head, which a lot of writers and academics are. I have to learn to get out of it a little bit more. I do, but here's the, the trick to it. I sort of hear them in my head, but my fingers have to be moving. So I have to do some of that free writing for that dialogue to really flow. But I do kind of imagine different tones of voices for Deb and Eric. And sometimes when I'm not happy with the scene, it's because I don't have the right voice for the characters. What would that character say? You know, um, and the book I'm working on now has some 20-year-olds in it. And in the first draft, I'm not worrying too much about accurate, well, accuracy isn't the right word, but about the tone of the dialogue, but in revision, I'll have to read books by, I do read books often, you know, like a memoir by somebody who was young. Um, I'm now getting into my more academic mode of very carefully explaining my research. And I think I want to move on a little faster from that, but I do all kinds of research from watching silly shows, um, you know, I recently watched that, is it Wednesday series? Um, yeah, which you have that character with her extremely distinctive deadpan voice. Two, reading classic novels. Two, as I said, reading um, just statements on professional websites, which, yes, can be boring unless you suddenly start to make fun of them. How many are you going to put in this series? Like, where do you think it'll end, or do you even know yet? I don't know. Um, I'm working, I started actually, the book I'm working on now started as a standalone. And I thought, I'm going to write a standalone. Don't, I don't know why. Because that's something mystery writers do sometimes. I think one problem of writing series, and this goes back to some of the questions you asked earlier, is it can get repetitions. It can get repetitious. Yes, you want consistency with your characters, but you don't want repeated scenes. So that's a problem. And sometimes I think writing them one on top of each other, you may fall into ruts. So I thought, I'll write a standalone. And I was getting going in it. I had, you know, maybe 30 pages, 40 pages. And I thought, they're not having fun. I'm not having fun. And I actually, I couldn't believe this would happen to me. I had dreams about Eric and Deb. It was kind of like, you've forgotten us, you know. We don't even have sex partners at this point. You've left us high and dry. Come on, do something for us. So they're somehow back in the book. So you're dreaming about these people that don't exist, and they talk to you. And, and they're demanding. And they're demanding. They want sex partners and stuff. Yeah. Well, at least it doesn't happen while you're driving, you know. No, it, no, it doesn't. Um, <laughs> so a good uh, thing, right? You know. No, and, and I do have, and I can't always explain it. I, I, have, I stop dreaming about them once I start writing, writing about them again. So wow. go wow. figure. They're not the telling mind, you to do anything weird, are they? Or it's like, you know, you're not. Not <laughs> yet. They might. <laughs> they might, if they don't like the ending of the book, they might say, why, why are you having me do that? Yeah. So um, I did write, write for a friend's uh, mystery writer, uh, Elena Taylor, has a blog, and I wrote a dialogue about the book between my two detectives, as if you were interviewing the two detectives. And um, I tried to make the point that, well, I wrote a lot of When the House Burns to confront my own feelings about the pandemic and so on and so forth. Um, I also would hope it would help the readers. 
And Detective Deb says, you mean I stripped down to my swimsuit in front of all these readers? You know, so they, they get sensitive. They complain yeah. sometimes. They say, you're sure. not going to make me do that in front of a reader, are you? But I say, yes, I am. As long as they don't make it go rob a bank or something. No. I will say, you know, I, I do have fun with them, and they love to bend rules a lot. But um, on the more serious side, Eric, uh, both my husband and I came from families where there was a strong sense of family and community duty. We didn't always agree with those duties. We might have different outlooks. But I gave some of that to Eric. Eric has, he may not admit it, but he's just sort of raised with that sense of duty that you serve your community somehow. With Deb, she's maybe more on the activist side because um, her own upbringing as, you know, though she had, she had a family that was only half supportive when she came out as lesbian. Not that they outlawed her or anything like that, but just didn't make it as easy for her as they could have. And also as part of her backstory, this is in book one, so I will fill this in. You don't need to know it, but as a babysitter, um, she showed up at a job and found that the woman had been shot by her husband. So that's a, that's not a true story. That's a bad story that was influenced by a true crime. So she's maybe takes it a little more personally. It's a little more active. And I think you'll get that note when you read the book. But the detectives like to have fun, too. Do, do you like to interact with your readers? And do you have social media set up? Or do you have, like, a website? Um, where do people find you? I do have a website. And people can connect everything through that and it's very simply my name.com priscillapatton.com perfect of course we'll have that up on our website too so people can find you you know with one click right uh, do you do you look at um reviews and what people say about the books or do you follow that or do you, do, are you are you involved in that or do you are you the type of writer that doesn't look at any of that sort of stuff well i kind of close one eye and turn my head half away and peek <laughs> uh, and then, and then um, I do read the good ones. I, I do look at some of them. I'm working with a publicist, and to tell the truth, she kind of screens them for me, so there's a little heads up, like, oh, a great one here, or I don't agree with this at all. You know, so she's kind of protecting me a little bit when there's bad ones. And um, I, you know, I one thing about being an academic, your work is critiqued a great deal. Um, not quite in the way book reviews are, but still, you have to get used to it. And one thing I learned early on from David Housewright, the mystery writer slash teacher, is you've got to have rhino skin if you want to be a writer. You'll be sensitive inside, but you've got to have rhino skin. And some people just won't get what you do. Um, I've had reviews that said I was very wordy, where positive reviews say I write, the writing is excellent, or the language is just very engaging. And I think, as you know from all the books you've written and read, different types of books appeal to different readers. Um, someone who likes Mickey Spillane might not care for mine that much, but if they like some contemporary writers like S.J. Rosen or Deborah Crombie who write very character-driven mysteries, um, where there's a lot of attention paid to the secondary characters, not just the detectives, then they might like mine. That's a way of saying that I, I change the topic when people bring up reviews. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I meant, I meant, as I just did there. Well, yeah, you should hunt them down and have them killed. Yeah, um, I, think that's what, I think that's what happens in the next book I write. 
but <laughs> I, I know there's been several movies about like the death of a theater critic or something, but I try to take encouragement from the positive ones. And if there are negative ones where they did seem to get something at the book, I try to think why. Um, I've learned I can't have quite so many characters. The novel works better when I have fewer characters because, I don't know, I thought it was Charles or Dickens or something with the first one. I kept coming up with names and characters, and I had to give each, each one something to do, and that got overwhelming for myself and for the reader. So I had to learn to stay more focused on who I've already got. Right, yeah. Do you have, do you have any problem writing a, um evil character or the person that committed the murder or who was the bad person in the book? Do you, do you have problems getting into the mindset of that? I maybe do, but don't quite realize it because often they're a little more off stage for a good deal of the book. Um, I certainly, my first one, I tried getting in the mind of somebody who really is bad in the first book, somebody who, and this isn't, this isn't a spoiler, but there's somebody who is killing children in where privacy dies. Uh, though that no child is killed in the actual course of the book. And I did try writing a scene where I was inside his mind, but he wasn't a POV character, so I just kind of got out of it. I have no desire to write a scene about the thrill of actually committing a murder. I don't do that. Um, that's not my interest. I do, however, think hard about the motive and the self-justification that a lot of fictional and real murderers have. And I certainly go some dark places, but I'm not the one who's going to get totally inside the mind of a psycho, unless my other characters are also psycho. But I just don't seem to do that. I'm more about other people figuring out how to deal with that. I might show other people's fear of that person and get some of the suspense and terror there. I think I do have a few moments in each book where there's terror. And... When I think about it now, you know, when you're a writer, often you get obsessed with your newest project, so you forget what you did before. Actually, in Should Grace Fail, I did a lot of research on con artists and how con artists think and manipulate their victims. And though there is a con artist in there who's not a point-of-view character, but I did think have to, have to think very hard about what he might say and how much of his own con he believed. Yeah, I think with... Um with the evil characters or the bad characters, in their minds, they think what they're doing is correct. Right. They think what they're doing is something good or something, you know, I don't want to say positive, but something that they think they should be doing and they're right. It's justified to them. And I'll say when the house burns has a character like that, it seemed right to that character Yeah. to commit a murder. So, um, yes, I think... That sense of justification is often there. Um, you know, I try to mix it up with the, so far I've got three books, and there's slightly different motives for different murders in each one. So I'm trying not to get in the rut there. Um, some of them are career criminals, some are not. Have you written a book about um, a, a lady writer that uh, plans to kill her husband? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, that... Well, that book might might have happened. That book almost happened when a certain husband kept postponing a retirement date. But uh, I think we've been saved yeah. from that scenario. <laughs> we have been saved from that. So <laughs> that would be a good indication. Yeah. Right. Right. 
I don't listen to so many speeches anymore. But, yes, um, we're not going totally into that Scandinavian darkness. And I have been to Norway and Scandinavia when it's been absolutely beautiful. So um, despite the novels, there is some lightness there. But Yeah, for a short time. Um, it's like in Minnesota, um, it was minus 15 for quite a while. And today it's 42 degrees. There you go. People are out. People might as well be out sunny. Yeah, that's February. That's kind of crazy. That's a bit early, isn't right. it, for you? Right. Yes, and the cold will come again. Oh, good. Um, this is just this is just a teaser. <laughs> this is just to get your hopes up and then dash them again. Exactly. I think you know uh, the Minnesota environment certainly does affect my writing, and um, I wrote a blog for a site once on, you know what you can do with the weather in Minnesota, because it, and this is true of a lot of uh, northern states, uh, true in New England, too. It could, you could have a 60-degree day in December. It'd be unusual, but could happen. I remember that kind of day once in Boston years ago when I was in graduate school. Um, you can have snow in April. You can have thunder snow. There's all kinds of wonderful things you can do with the weather. Um, you don't get a hurricane here, but you do get tornadoes. Um, another thing I really like, and I was very frustrated with this during the early stages of the pandemic, I really like doing site research because it's a wonderful form of research that may seem like procrastination. Like, oh, let's leave the house. Let's go out and drive around. But you do see people and you overhear things. Um, and I eventually did get to do some site research for when the house burns. I got to go on a construction site with the construction manager, and there was a crane that was 160 feet tall to move these heavy blocks of steel and concrete. And I learned, I can't, this did not make it into a book, so this is a bonus just for you, that the operator of the crane goes up a little elevator every morning with his lunchbox, and he stays up there for the full eight hours. I think there are facilities up there. Uh, moving stuff around. So I learned that. But um, I you know, learned a little bit about how dangerous construction can be, too, and how much construction workers can be moved from place to place. So what does a writer do? A writer, a writer partly finds empathy in places where you wouldn't think to look for. Like I hadn't thought of uh, construction workers as often being very mobile, uh, being moved from one job to another. Though I admit, I escaped the Minnesota winter and vacationed in Florida for a little bit. And I saw some of the destruction from Hurricane Ian. And there are all kinds of construction workers down, down there from every place else because that's where the need is right now. I'll bring this back to Minnesota because I had to come back to the snow. Research, I, I do believe in research, and I think that's a hangover from my academic days because I do these books. Um, you know, I'm not working out a past trauma from my childhood, which was quite protected, but I do it to com confront present traumas of my family and other people. And I think I do it to find more. I, I do it. It's very exploratory for me, as it is for my detectives. I'm trying to discover more about people, more about all kinds of things, from construction workers to uh, women who are terrified for one reason or another, or, um, you know, what do detectives do on their days off? Is anything, I guess. Hmm. You know, have you ever um, killed off someone that you know in your book? 
I have a fairly low death rate within the current plot. <laughs> and I've had to be very careful. You know, I've been connected with uh, educational institutions and nonprofits. I've moved around a lot. That's good because I always say this character is based on somebody I knew somewhere else. Instead of saying, well, it's really based on you, but I can't tell you that. <laughs> and, um, well, I, I did, I may have had some vengeance. Not so much a murder, but I may have put some people in awkward situations that I thought they deserved to be in. But, um, pretty much I find that if I stay too close to a real character, that real character gets in the way. I have to at some point let the fiction take over and see what the fiction demands. Yeah, blame it on the characters when the people you know get hurt. Right. <laughs> yeah, I right. understand that. Wow. Now we know. Right. It's not, none of it's my fault, of course. No, no. Never. <laughs> well, we, we have to leave it at that. Well, okay, so now the book we're talking about, time to buy it. It's called When the House Burns. And our guest is the author of that book and many more. Look her up. Uh, Priscilla Patton, thank you for being on the show. Well, thank you so much, Al. Thanks, Priscilla. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Something with media. I'll be back.